Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, Pastor Josh continues his series covering the book of Romans and teaches the truth of the gospel being the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1 as Pastor Josh delivers his sermon titled, Not Ashamed of the Gospel. All right, let's turn our attention to the word, Romans chapter 1. We're going to read verses 16 and 17. We've now finished up two paragraphs, kind of two sections, ready to start this third paragraph, only two verses in this paragraph. Let's read it together and then we'll pray. Verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Please bow with me and let's ask for God's help. Oh, our Father, God, we come to you and bow and ask for your grace right now. Lord, please, everything that we're going to need in this time Lord, to benefit, to be changed in whatever way it is that we need. Father, I I ask, Lord, that you will come and you will give grace. I ask, God, that you will give the full power that your gospel has, the power of your Holy Spirit to come and bring change. Your gospel takes those that are not yet right with you, those that are not in Christ, and awakens, brings life, creates faith, converts the soul. I ask God that that'll happen. God, I pray somebody is justified, somebody comes to faith in Christ this morning. Father, and we pray also for your people. God, you tell us that your gospel is also what transforms, what brings growth in holiness, transformation. We ask that it'll do that, O oh God. Please give me help in everything that I need to preach. Bless all of us, O oh God, as we sit beneath you to worship, draw near to you and hear from you through your word. Please, God, bless in this time. We ask these things through Christ. Amen. Martin Luther hated these verses a little shocking for a time. It was a year ago this month um, that we were in the midst of a series on the Reformation because last October marked the 500th anniversary uh, of the day that Martin Luther nailed what it was called the 95 Theses to the door of the church at Wittenberg, sparking what we refer to as the Protestant Reformation. Um, If you don't know about that, and when I talk about that, that sounds strange to you, you can get on our website, follow the links to past sermons, look those up. And even if you just listened to the first one in that series, you would understand the the storyline of what this was going on. But while Luther was still a priest in the Catholic Church, he had been brought up under a system of teaching a system of teaching of how it is we have eternal life, how it is we're right with God. 
And the system of teaching that he had been raised in was a system that taught we're made right with God. We receive this salvation that we need by faith in Christ, but plus good works, participation in the religious sacraments. A system that taught that we, over the course of time, in the doing of good works, we get closer and closer to being right with God. The gaining of merit, the earning of righteousness to come to a place that hopefully we then come to where we are right with God. Now, I'm going to tell you that is not what the Bible teaches, but this is all he had ever heard. And so when he heard the word gospel, in his mind, he thought of the gospel he was taught. And so while still under that belief, that being the only system he had ever been exposed to, he began to study the book of Romans. And the book of Romans perplexed him. Because in more than 20 places in the book of Romans, the way of truth, the way of God is, has conflict with that system. A system of believing that by good works, we are made right with God. And he came to verses 16 and 17 in his study. He would read through the entire book, be perplexed, read through it again, can't figure out how do the pieces fit together. And verses 16 and 17 in particular, in some of, by his own confession, some of his writings, he says he hated these verses. He didn't want to, but he found his soul perplexed and frustrated because here is Paul speaking words of joy over the gospel. In his mind, he's going, the only thing we learn by this message is that I'm foul, God is righteous, and I'm condemned. What's so good about that? Like, like where, where's the joy in this? He actually describes that he would pound his Bible in frustration over not understanding how this can be good news, how Paul can be excited about what we're told about God's righteousness. But then there was one day when it happened, the pieces fell together in his mind. The way that the, way that the book uh, comes together in all of its different parts and showing the glorious uh, gospel that is there, he suddenly understood it. And he says that the key to him understanding all of it was Romans 1, 17. Verse 17, right there, he, this is when sort of the, the ray of light. By his own words, he described it as the happiest day of his life. He said he could have danced a jig uh, on that day by learning that God is offering righteousness as a gift. This righteousness that the gospel presents is not a righteousness that is earned, but a righteousness that is given freely, not by works, but by faith. That there is, no, there is not a situation of I buy my way into the kingdom or earn my way into the kingdom, but that in one moment, at the moment of faith, belief in Christ, trust in the gospel, there is the receiving of the standing of being right with God in a movement. And the joy that he received over discovering this truth led to a history-changing movement of the gospel. He discovered nothing new. 
but old truths that had been forgotten and replaced by a flood of false teaching. It is my hope that as we study through these verses together, you'll want to dance a jig in your seats. Please don't. That would get a little funny, okay? But that you will long to, that your heart will rejoice in the gospel like this. We mentioned our very first Sunday as we began studying through this book together that verses 16 and 17 state the premise for the whole book. This is the central idea for this entire message of Romans. If you understand the details that are here, and they're not simple, I don't want to like, like make this sound easier than it is. There are some complexities. The Bible has many parts that are so simple, eight-year-olds can, can receive it and understand it very, very clearly. The Bible's got some complexities. But if we will understand the details of verses 16 and 17, you will understand the heart of this book and the heart of the gospel. Uh, this paragraph, this statement, central idea, has five or six parts. Kind of depend on how you break them up there. It's got about five parts. I've divided it into six just for one to be kind of a, a statement of clarification. So l- let me show them to you. And if you're taking notes, these will be the six points we work through um, in the time that it takes. We're only going to cover three today. But let me show them to you. If, you. if you're looking at the text, first of all, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. So that's the first point he makes. The gospel is so beautiful it is to be rejoiced in. Secondly, he says the gospel is the power of God. And then thirdly, connected there for salvation. It is the power of God for salvation. Number four, to everyone who believes, Jew and Gentile, regardless. Number five, The gospel brings God's righteousness to the sinner as a gift. And then number six, the now righteous man now has life because of faith. Not works, but because of faith. That is the premise of this whole book. I mean, everything we're going to study throughout the whole book is going to flow out of that central premise, okay? In chapter 4, when he talks about Abraham, it's as an example to teach salvation by faith. In chapter 5, when he talks about suffering. In chapter 14, when there's some discussion on how we view alcohol, okay? It's all flowing out of this place of this premise right here. So we're going to work through this premise, understand the heart of the message, and then there's going to be 10 and a half chapters of explanation of the gospel and then five chapters of ramifications of the gospel. That's the book. That's the flow of this book. So we'll get started today working through three parts of this uh, opening premise. Here is number one, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, as we start this point, let me tell you that from the beginning, this statement When we read this here, when he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, I hope that in your heart there's a little bit of joy, like, yeah, amen. When we finish, when we finish verses 16 and 17, and then when we finish this whole section, which ends so gloriously at the end of chapter 11, just this worshiping moment, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, this whole celebration, 
If I remember, it's a long time before we get to the end of chapter 11. If I remember, we'll come back here, read this phrase right here. I am not ashamed of the gospel and your heart will rejoice more then than you do right now. Because what is going to happen is the unpacking, the dissecting, the unfolding, the explanation of the gospel. And when we see the intricacies, the details, the complexities of the gospel, you will see it is more beautiful than you've ever thought it is. Your heart may rejoice today that Jesus died for you. You will rejoice more when you see all that God unfolds about how he has saved us in Christ But if you're a Christian, when you read this statement, I hope your heart says it with the scriptures, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Or to say it positively, I am proud of the gospel. I boast in the gospel. I love the gospel. The gospel is the source of my joy. The gospel is where my hope is. The gospel is beautiful. If you're not a Christian, if you have not yet embraced Christ, if you have not yet received what God is calling salvation here, your your heart cannot say that yet. Your heart cannot rejoice in the gospel because you've not yet fully embraced it. As of right now, there is still a rejection of those things. And in fact, if you're not a Christian you might not know what this word even really means. There are quite a few words from the Bible that just sort of get tossed out there, like righteousness, okay? We're gonna study what that is. There are some biblical words that sometimes just get spoken, but not really known what they are, and maybe gospel's one of them. But the gospel means good news, and God uses it specifically referred to the greatest news, the greatest message Ever told. It is sometimes called in the New Testament the the message of the cross or the word of the cross, the message of Christ, the message of what God has done in his son, in the work of the cross, is the greatest news, the greatest message that has ever existed. If uh, somebody told you you're going to receive a billion dollars tomorrow morning, that would be good news. What I'm telling you is that the gospel, the message of what God has done in Christ is a billion times better than that news. I know that's what you expect preachers to say, but that doesn't change that it is true. You, if you received that billion dollars tomorrow morning, it would be pleasurable for a season of time, okay? Maybe... Your whole life, I'm going to say I doubt it, but okay, maybe for your whole life. But it wouldn't matter if it were a hundred lifetimes. The fact of the matter is you have a soul that was created to be eternal. And you have broken the law of the living God. There is a justice, there is a judgment that you are owed. You are going to stand before God who is the judge of the living and the dead and the one you will answer to for your life. That billion dollars is not going to help you before him. There is a judgment that you deserve. And that's to me and every Christian as well. We deserve judgment. But what God has done in Christ, 
is to make a way for sinners who deserve judgment to be made right with him, to have forgiveness of sins and receive eternal life. You are defiled by your sins apart from Christ. There is wrath that is coming to you. But if the sins are taken care of, if the wrath that is owed to you is placed onto Christ and you are accepted by the living God, then that means you're in a position that you can have eternal life in the presence of God. And this is what God has done in Christ. And what the way that you receive that is not by a system of works. It's not by a system of religion. As much as we want you to be here on Sunday mornings, God doesn't have a book up in heaven where he's like, all right, once they reach a thousand Sundays of church attendance, that's it. Then you're in heaven. That's not how it works. The way that it works is God gives this right standing with him, the full forgiveness of sins, the promise of eternal life in a moment, at the moment of the heart turning to Christ in, this is what is so critical, faith. Faith. True trusting in Christ. Resting in Christ, depending on Christ, receiving Christ. That's, that's another way the Bible will speak of this, receiving Christ, embracing Christ by faith. This is, this is all synonyms to help us understand what genuine faith is. The letting go of trusting other things and holding on to my sin rebellion, embracing Christ with a heart that is submissive to him. It is by faith. That is the gospel. Now, there's a whole lot more that we need to know as Christians in order to grow. And, and I will tell you that the more you know of the gospel, the greater your joy can soar, the deeper your hope can be. And every believer has questions. Every unbeliever has objections that, that can all be talked through and taught. But the basic message of the gospel is so simple that an eight-year-old can understand it and be saved in five minutes. You can share the gospel with a child in five minutes and they can be converted. If you are here this morning and you have never received this, there has never been a time that you have heard about this message, this message of salvation and your need for it. And you're right now outside of that. It can happen right now. Stop listening to me. Turn to Jesus Pray, call out to him, embrace Christ, then come back and start listening again, okay? Embrace Christ by faith. You can have this now. This is not a promise of a, of a process where one day, long time in the future, maybe you'll earn enough righteousness. Right now, God's righteousness, his right standing is available to you. That's why the gospel's beautiful. The gospel's beautiful because the thief on the cross who had no chance of climbing down and living a good life, had hope. This is the beauty of the gospel. The gospel's beautiful to the foul, to the defiled, like me, to have forgiveness of sins. The gospel is beautiful because God has in Christ made a way to him. And so if you are not a Christian, you cannot yet love the gospel because you've not yet believed the gospel. And to Christian, you can say this, I love the gospel, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, but it is a reality that we face temptation to be embarrassed about the gospel. 
We face the temptation for the gospel to become old news, like the jeweler who works around diamonds every single day for those diamonds not to be as exciting as what they once were. We Christians face the temptation to over time joy and zeal that we once had about the gospel for it to fade. It is going to take work for our joy in the gospel to sustain. And we also know that there are ways that we're tempted to be embarrassed by the gospel. There are ways that intimidation from the world feels, we feel a pressure to cower. And at worst, it can lead to moments that we downright deny the gospel. Now, I want to be careful even as I say that. I don't want to give the impression like that's just okay, you know, just, just another sin. If you were to read Matthew chapter 10, Verses 26 to 33, you could jot that down in your notes if you're taking notes. That's the passage where Jesus talks about, you must confess me before men. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father who is in heaven. But if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father and before the angels of heaven. Um, Jesus puts some serious weight to this whole thing of not denying him, not denying the gospel. By the way, If you were wondering today, will the sermon be on baptism because there is a baptism? No, but here's a 30-second little snippet. This is one of the reasons why baptism matters like it does. Baptism is the great act whereby we take the Jesus name tag and declare, I'm a Christian and I really mean it. I intend to follow after Christ. But you know that as Christians, there are these moments where we sometimes stay silent out of pressure. I'm also glad that not only did Jesus give us Matthew 10 and the bold statements that he makes about needing to confess him, but we're also shown the example of Peter, who had a moment of falling to temptation and denying Christ. I'm glad we see Peter repent and be restored. That's hope for us. I'm glad it's not one and done or I'd be done. I've had those moments I wish I could get back. But if you think about the scenario, imagine a young man sitting in psychology class. The professor makes a statement about sexuality not being a choice. Hardwired in chemically, people have no control over it. And then someone in the class makes a snide comment about those, those Christians and their stupidity of believing. Otherwise, and the rest of the class giggles along, shakes their head in derision at the Christian worldview. That young man can be overwhelmed by fear, sit there in a a, a sense of quiet, afraid to raise his hand and defend the scriptures at that moment, kind of being afraid to be found out as a Christian. In that moment, he has been ashamed. He has been embarrassed. Not so much maybe particularly of the gospel, but of truths of the word. And there are hundreds of individual truths from the Bible that the world will hate. And Christians, we can be tempted to be embarrassed about, but the central message of the Bible, the central message that sums up all of God's word and all that God is about from history is the gospel. And the world's disgust with the things of God really does find its central hatred in the gospel. I know that sounds like a strong way of saying it, but it is the truth. The world will hate that the gospel declares that you are unclean. 
You, you're not okay. You're not beautiful. You're not special. And you are not a good person. The gospel declares that I and you deserve a punishment that is far greater than jail. The gospel declares that you who are without Christ, and that includes any who are in this room right now, I don't know your hearts, I don't know where you are, but if you think of this as a joke, you are facing an eternity of the wrath of God burning forever and ever. Are you starting to get a sense of why the gospel is hated? The world has even developed its own cliches that are taught as gospel truths. I, I am beautiful no matter what. I am a good person. I have a good heart. I, I'm special. I'm enough. I'm so enough. And the gospel declares that every single one of those cliches is a lie. The gospel is offensive to the prideful heart. The gospel is offensive. Listen to me, not because it should be. It shouldn't be offensive. The gospel is offensive because before we come to Christ in our natural state, we don't see ourselves as we ought to. We see ourselves according to pride. We see ourselves according to a lofty view of ourselves. The gospel confronts all of that. First Corinthians chapter one, you can turn there if you like, or just listen to it read. First Corinthians 1 18 says this, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The world thinks of it as absurd and different eras, generations, and even pockets of cultures have all had different parts of the gospel they found absurd. A hundred years ago, what the gospel declares about the warning of hell was not seen as absurd by the culture as a whole. But today it is. The, the ways that the philosophies of the age change is all the time. And it's one of the things we say pretty often. If you're just going to believe what everybody else believes, be prepared to change a lot. Because every five years, there's a whole turnover in what's popular and what's absurd. hundred years ago, nobody thought the idea of hell was ridiculous. Today, there are people who, who say that it would be unjust if God created a hell. And they think the gospel is absurd because of this. Now, here is another great danger, though. Some will take the gospel and make their own version of it. And I don't say this to try to, to, try to be condemning. There's, there's a wrong way to talk about error that's out there under the name of Christianity. There's, there's a way to be real harsh and judgmental and for us to feel real elevated and snide, okay? Like we gotta be real careful that we don't do that. But at the same time, we do have the job of pointing out error. Churches will sometimes explain God in a way that sounds like the kind of God that an unbeliever would want a God who is only loving. He just really wants to be my big grandpa in the sky, a God who has no wrath and no holiness, who winks at my sin and kind of acts like my grandpa would sometimes shake his head and say things like, boys will be boys, those kids. Churches will sometimes explain the gospel in ways that leave out the critical parts, the parts that unbelievers would disagree with like the message of sin and wrath. They'll say some things like there's hope and life in Jesus, which is true. But there are some other parts we got to know before we understand the hope and the life. 
and will never address the awfulness of sin. The reality of wrath and the fact that if you do not repent, you do face an eternity in hell. I've brought up numerous times in in past sermons some of my childhood experience in church um, never once hearing the gospel, we, we would stay at a church for a couple years and kind of float to some others as, as my parents were seeking truth and would cycle through these social churches and things never once hearing the gospel. Would hear a lot of messages on how to be nice, but never once hearing the truths that show us our need for salvation. Now, here's one of the things that I came to learn later, though, with many of these churches. They technically held to the gospel, meaning somewhere there was a statement of faith tucked away that officially, technically, they believed these things. And if you were to go to the preachers and you were to ask them, do you believe that sin deserves wrath? Do you believe that every soul must be saved? Do you believe that there is a hell and that people are in danger there? They would say, yes, yes, yes to those things, but they never said it out loud. It was never taught. In fact, most every Sunday, there was just sort of this attitude of everybody's okay. Let's just talk about how to be a better person. Let's just talk about how to be nice. There was never this confrontation. And so listen to me, friends. If you are embarrassed by the truths of the gospel so much that you will not say them, you don't really believe them. If you will only admit to holding them when you're around other people that hold to them, that's cowering. To love the gospel, to boast in the gospel, It's to declare the full gospel. And so Christian, let me me ask you application question. Does your soul rejoice in the gospel? Does your soul say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I love it. I believe it. I'm, I'm basing my life by it and I am willing to die for it. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. This was Paul's statement of joy. Well, secondly, here's the next statement that is made in this section here. The gospel is the power of God. And then it's going to add in this part here for salvation. But let's talk for a second here about how the gospel is powerful. How the gospel is the power of God. The gospel is the central message of the scriptures. We've we've noted that. And so everything that God says about his word, everything that God says about the power of the scriptures pertains to the highest degree to the gospel. And so if you were to think through all of the things that the Bible says about the Bible, all the things that God says about his word that he has given to humanity, all of these apply to the highest way to the gospel. God shows that his word is powerful. Now, here's what we don't mean by that. Um, here, here's an example. Friday night, um, got to go to a dinner where a missionary that we're associated with was telling us some things about work in um, North Korea, the ministry there. And he told us a couple stories He told us things like there are a number of pastors that they've been able to make connection with and that not that long ago, one of the pastors was found out and was executed. There is a cost to ministering the word. For this reason, the churches, these small, tiny, tiny little churches of maybe five people in North Korea they will get together on Thursday mornings at two in the morning in order to worship together. I heard those things and I thought, man, that's 
powerful, and, and it is. And what I mean by that is it's emotionally powerful. Yes, there are truths that are involved in that, but that moved me. It, it stirred me. But when we say that God's word is powerful, we mean something more than that. When, when scripture says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, this is not just saying that it's emotionally moving. What it is saying is this. There is a supernatural power to bring change by the work of the word. There is a supernatural power in the lost to hear the word and be awakened and for the believer to be transformed, changed, grown, strengthened. And when you start to look for this in the scripture, it's just everywhere. You've got places like 1 Thessalonians 2.13, which speaks about the word of God um, that Paul spoke, by the way. So this is the word of God spoken through the lips of men. But when the truths of God are taught, it says this, it performs its work in you who believe. Apparently there is a work that the word does internally, a work of transformation in Psalm 29. That's that passage that talks about the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The voice of the Lord causes the deer to calve and the, and the, uh, the, the forest lands to be stripped bare. The voice of the Lord is, is powerful. The Bible shows this principle. When God breathes, stuff happens. Universes are created by the word of God. Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is upholding the cosmos by the word of his power. Okay, why, does the, why do the planets stay in their orbit? Why do the cosmos obey the laws that God has put on them? Because Jesus is telling them to, okay? The word of God is powerful. You've got that passage in Ezekiel 37. It's one of the, one of the most well-known passages in, in Ezekiel. We'll get there in our scripture reading. You've got that vision that Ezekiel has of a valley that's full of dead men's bones, and in the vision, God brings Ezekiel to this valley. He looks out. He describes the bones. They're very dead, dead, dry bones, kind of a gross imagery here. And God tells him, prophesy over the bones, meaning the words that God gave him, he was to preach. He was to herald. He was to speak over dead bones. That seems kind of pointless. Kind of like going to the cemetery to do a Bible study. It's not going to have a lot of effect. But God tells him to do it. He begins to prophesy, begins to speak God's word. Something begins to happen. Bones begin to rattle. This is a vision. These bones begin to rattle. Ezekiel is seeing this valley spread throughout and bones are moving and bones are coming and joining together. And God tells Ezekiel, he encourages him, keep going, keep prophesying. As he keeps doing this, sinew starts to grow on the bones, piecing them together. Muscle and flesh and fibers are all coming together. And at the very end, this whole army of now living men stand up in front of him. That sounds really neat. What does it mean? This is God demonstrating this is God giving a metaphor of the power of the word and what happens in the heavenly realm at the speaking of God's word. That apparently even 
when the word of God is spoken from sinful lips, from frail, weak humans, the word of God still has power to bring the dead to life. And the New Testament comes on to show us and to say that this is exactly what happens in the gospel. If you are in this room and you are a Christian, there was a moment in time when you were spiritually dead. You were like one of them dry bones laying in the valley. You heard the gospel or read the gospel or somebody told you about the gospel or something where you encountered the message of Christ. And there might have been a process of God drawing you, but there was a moment, there was an instant when you crossed from death to life. This is what the gospel does. There's, there's nothing else out there that does that. Okay? You, you might love history books and they're True. If you read true facts from history, you're reading truth. It doesn't bring the dead to life. God's word is powerful in a way that nothing else is. All kinds of verses from scripture, like Hebrews 4, 12, the words God's living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intention of the heart over and over and over again. Scripture shows us the power of the word. So when scripture says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, my mind says, yeah, yeah, I see it over and over. I've seen it in my life. And on a regular basis in the church family, we see the power of the word and the gospel to transform. What's that statement? I'm not yet where I want to be, but thank God I'm not who I used to be. The word of God has a transforming effect of bringing us to life and then in strengthening in him. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. Now, there are a lot of applications from that. There's, there's a whole list of ways that this matters in our lives. Number one, Christian, whenever we speak the gospel, we need to stop doubting it. We need to stop thinking in our heads as we share the gospel with someone that maybe we're thinking, never going to believe. We need to see the power of the gospel. And let me also say this church family, um, as a word that, that kind of gets to the, the heart of why we do what we do in the way that we do, this is why. This is what forms the basis for what we are about as a church family. This, this forms the beliefs of why there are ministries we take part in, why there are things we don't do, how we do church life. Our trust is not in creative efforts we can come up with. We are completely trusting in the power of the gospel to do what only it can do. That's why we do the ministries that we do. That's why we value so highly some of these ministries of things like that get us in the schools. You know, we sometimes get asked about why. I, I just love the fact that we have just an, an army of, of gospel workers in this church in all kinds of areas. But I, I can tell you that the, particularly the ministries we have in the schools here, we've got an army of wives who could be doing a lot of other things but are investing themselves to going into the schools and teaching the gospel. And you should hear the way that sometimes people speak to them, speak to us. Kind of like this derogatory attitude of like, well, I guess you got nothing else to do. And they mean that. 
Like, I guess, you know, everybody needs something to do. Everybody's got to fill their time with something. Glad you got time and nothing else to do so you can come in here and do this. I can tell you right now, my wife falls into bed exhausted every single day. She ain't bored looking for things to do. Sometimes I want to respond when people, you know, sort of have this idea, well, preachers, you know, they just walk around church all week and then they prepare a sermon for work one day. Sometimes I want to be like, I am sometimes so stressed out. I physically shake. I'm not bored. I'm not looking for something else to do. We do not do this because we have nothing else. We do this because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. There are hundreds of souls, hundreds hundreds of souls that God has opened up a door. We get to share the gospel. They're going to stand before God. Life comes one way, Christ. They must be righteous before him. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. This forms why we do what we do. God tells us what he wants the church to look like. He tells us what he wants the church to be doing. And every time, it's always centered around the word. It's always centered around the spiritual life, the word and prayer. And as a church, anything that we ever do that takes away from work of the word will become an obstacle, even if it's an okay thing. So I, I, just, I just want you to think about this. I want you to think about some church situations. I don't believe this is the case here. We fought very hard to try to create a culture based on our theology. It's not perfect. We're still working to get there, but there are some things I'm very grateful for. But think about some church settings that you've seen as a reality. So, some of my brothers in the ministry who will tell me about some of the difficulties and challenging they're facing, it sounds a lot like this. The church that they're at over the last 100 years has developed 65 different things, programs, ministries, events, time fillers. A lot of times, a lot of times that's what they are. They're not evil. You know, not church not getting together, having seances. It's not evil. It's just, it's a time filler kind of thing. And the pastor gets hired at the church and he finds he has responsibilities in about 64 of these things. And this is kind of oversimplifying it, but sometimes not by very much. That pastor spends his week, week in, week out, doing two things. Scrambling to scrounge up a couple sermons and then dealing with the administration and the managerial responsibilities in these 64 different things. And here's what that means he cannot do. He cannot be robustly studying so as to robustly preach because that takes time. He also cannot be doing any kind of significant evangelism. He cannot be doing one-on-one -on -one or small group discipleship, which we're just shown is just one of the keys to growing in maturity. He cannot be spending the hours and hours and hours with men of the church to develop them into leaders by, by, by walking slowly through the word with them, which again, scripture shows to be critical to the strengthening and growth of the church. This pastor being overrun by all of the time fillers means that there's the work of the word that is not happening. Let me give you some real numbers. 
Real numbers. This is reality of, of the church in America, this culture right now. The average pastor in America right now does not read the Bible. Does not read the Bible devotionally. The average pastor in America spends less than five minutes a day in prayer. Now, I want you to take just those two things right there and see the conflict with the way that God shows us what the life of the church is supposed to be. Scripture shows that what the church's leaders are to be doing, like their life is the word and prayer. Like that's their life. Like the Bible mentions administrative duties kind of like in a subpoint of a subpoint over here in a paragraph tucked away down here. And the, the, the life is the word and prayer. Do you see that there has been a reversal? How did it come about? Okay things have hijacked the critical things. As a people lose their sense of wonder over the power of the word, the centrality of the gospel, that the gospel is to be the air that we breathe as Christians, everything we do always being from the word and for the word, all of this, as there comes a distancing, the intention that God has for the church gets hijacked. And, and, and yes, Christian, if you're sitting there thinking, okay, well, you're talking about pastors, it doesn't apply to me. No, no, we're all a part of this because the expectations of a church family have a whole lot to do with how life in the church will go. It really does. All of us need to know the philosophies for why we do what we do. One of the reasons I've known some brothers in ministry who have tried to rework life in the church family to be more gospel-centered, word-centered, only to be met by a lynching mob at a business meeting, screaming out, my grandma baked pies for that festival. <laughs> and there is a denial and a refusal to center life in the word. And so every single one of us, friends, we, we need to understand what God wants our lives to look like. Um, um, our last uh, men's specific Bible study that we did on Wednesday night, we looked at Deuteronomy 6 and the call for, for fathers to be speaking of the word all throughout the day. When you lie down, when you rise up, when you're walking, when you're sitting, when you're going, when you're all this. And one of the points we made is it's not just for fathers. Does it make sense? This is what God wants the Christian's life to look like a life revolving around the word and what we do as a church has to be like this. What we are seeing is a leaving of Jesus's instructions for what the Christian life ought to look like, the power of the word and what the church ought to be doing isn't working out real well. It isn't working out real well. Sometimes folks will make a suggestion of something we could do and I'm not knocking the suggestions. Please bring suggestions. But sometimes it's worded like, you know, the church down the street's doing it this way. And I'm thinking, that is not an encouragement for me to want to imitate that. The average church in America right now is in decline. Every denomination except two in this culture are in decline. The drifting from word centrality gospel-centered life and ministry, well, go figure, it's not working out well. Trying to do things our own way and hijacking the centrality of the gospel is leading to 
disciples not being made. The life of the church is to be revolving around the word. The word is our life. The gospel is our life. And good things can keep us from that which is life. Well, here's one last quick point. Number three. So we said the gospel is the power of God. And then we're just going to emphasize this last part for salvation. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. The gospel is not the power of God to make you rich. The gospel is not the power of God to heal you from your sickness. Um, there is a great, there is a big movement of teaching that once you're right with Jesus, then you're a child of the King. And boy, you just get ready, get that bank account ready because God's just going to pour in. That's not what the gospel is powerful for. I was sharing the gospel one time with a man um, and we were talking about and kind of got to this part of the gospel being powerful. And he told me, oh yeah, yeah, I believe that one time my aunt or grandma or somebody was sick and we took the Bible and we rubbed it all over her legs. That's not what the gospel is powerful for. That's a superstitious kind of belief. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. And Christian, let me apply this in a way that maybe is not overtly obvious, but it's going to come out in this book. We've just made a bunch of points here about how the gospel converts, but do you see how many texts of the Bible, including this one, say something in addition for the Christian? The gospel is how you are converted and the gospel is how you are kept. Now, I imagine that that statement might be a little unsettling for some. Just wait, I'm going to unsettle you even more. Because there are some ways that even in gospel preaching churches that, that honor God, there are some wrong ideas that sometimes do get passed on about how salvation works. So I'm going to unsettle you a little bit. But look at verse 15, Romans 1, 15, back up for a second here. Paul says, so for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Who's Paul talking to? The believers. Do you understand what he's saying? I, I want to come preach the gospel to you Christians. He's going to come preach to the lost. But he is very much saying here, I want to come to you Christians and preach the gospel. Wait a second, Paul. Don't you know that's not how this works? Paul, Paul, sit down. Let me instruct you a little bit here. Paul, the way that this works is you preach the gospel to the lost and then to believers. Then you move on to all the other stuff that they need. You move on past the gospel. I think to that, Paul would say, 1 Corinthians 1.18, which we just read a second ago. Listen to, what, listen to the very specific wording. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Christian, you are still being saved. Are you unsettled even more? Yes, you are still being saved. You're not done yet. Wait a second, pastor. G didn't Jesus say things like once, once you're saved, you can never lose your salvation? Yes, he did. Amen. 
And the same Jesus who said that no one can pluck you out of my father's hand also said, he who endures till the end will be saved. These truths are always placed together in scripture and we will get in trouble if we remove them and separate them and only talk about one of them. The gospel is how you are converted and in a moment. The gospel is how you are brought into this grace of salvation. But listen to me, Christian. The gospel is going to bring you all the way home. The gospel brings you into grace and the gospel is going to take you all the way there. Your salvation isn't done. You've received forgiveness, acceptance, and the promise and 40 some other things. But your salvation isn't done until the day of judgment is finished. You have been wrapped in the robes of Christ, glorified body and soul, and you take your first step onto that pristine ground, then your salvation is done. And the gospel that saved you, justified you, is the gospel that is going to carry you all the way through that gate. We never stop needing the gospel. You are never going to grow to a point where you're like, all right, now that I'm mature, now I can move on to the other stuff. The most mature place you will ever be in your walk is when you love the gospel the most and it's what you want the most. Give me more of understanding of how God has saved me. Christian, you're going to keep needing the gospel in all of its details. And for you who have not yet embraced the gospel, I talk about this salvation and maybe that seems like a foreign, weird thing to you. Please hear me. You have a need that is greater than any other need. This need is so great that Jesus said it's worth losing your house, land, possessions, friends, family, jobs, esteem, and even your life to get this one thing. Matthew 16 for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Now let me put you at ease here for a second. Your soul is only in danger if you've sinned. Let me take away your ease. You've sinned. Since that is all of us, there is something that your soul needs. And God has provided for it in Christ. And God calls this deliverance that your soul needs from sin and the effects of sin out of wrath and into salvation. This is what Christ has done. Out of wrath and into grace. Out of estranged from God and into fellowship with God. From unrighteous to a right standing with God. So look to Christ. Embrace him by faith. Turn away from all of the ways you've trusted in anything else, including yourself, and trust only in Christ. Call out to God in prayer and then tell somebody. And then God says, follow this up by showing it to the world and confessing it in baptism. And if you want help with that, if you've got questions about that, Please find me after the service or Pastor Ben, talk with us about how you can know Christ. Let me close this in prayer. Oh God in heaven, we love you and just find ourselves saying thank you for Christ after the end of like every Sunday, 
as we consider your word and some other way that what you've done is beautiful and glorious and for our joy. Thank you for Christ. Lord, I want to pray that we as a church family will be gospel-centered, mission-minded, put these things into practice. We will be an evangelistic church. We will be a factory making disciples, raising up leaders and workers and laborers for your kingdom. And Father, I, I pray that you will use us to reach this place as well, where this community where you've placed us, make us effective, O oh God. Make us a people who rejoice in the gospel, love the gospel, and will bleed for the gospel. Please bless our day. Uh, Lord, in the time we're going to spend in, in eating together, thank you for providing food. Bless our time of fellowship and meal together. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed Pastor Josh LaGrange's sermon titled, Not Ashamed of the Gospel. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.